Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing ajit deyal is an entrepreneur like no other his endeavors range from writing comic books to setting up india's first direct to investor mutual fund at heart he is an educator focused on empowering individuals so they can make better investment decisions in the first part of this two part episode we talk about ajit's journey from the race tracks in mumbai to becoming a global value fund manager welcome uh, to the equity master mint investor ajit thank you for doing this uh, you know we we launched the podcast just a few weeks ago and uh, you know it's been an honor to have all the guests that we've had and uh, you know and we understand the risk you're taking of doing this show very early in the cycle but uh, you know it's going to be fun and it's going to be light and i promise i'm not going to be asking for a stock tip or a recommendation per se in fact uh, uh, a little different from the initial podcast that we've done one of the things i'm going to focus on today is asset allocation i think something that uh, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time on and but i believe and i've learned a lot a lot of that from you that in the long term the asset allocation makes a more than significant impact on overall returns and the wealth the person accumulates so just to give you a little bit of a heads up on that uh we are however going to start right at the beginning so i want you to tell us a little bit about yourself starting you you were of course born and brought up in bombay you did your schooling in bombay i know you went to college at jehan and you studied economics at jehan I studied economics. You studied economics at Jehan, and then mm-hmm. you took off uh, for the US to do your MBA. Uh, along this whole journey, is there any pattern that Ajit would end up managing money and becoming a fund manager along the way? So, I um, uh, just actually a few days ago, I put on my school chat group mm-hmm. a little note about me. in my mm-hmm. school alumni magazine and you know when a school alumni magazine writes about you little like eight lines 10 yeah. lines little paragraph mm-hmm. uh it started by saying ajit dayal who was an avid bunker at school <laughs> you know and then it says has set up equity mm-hmm. master personal fund quantum mutual fund helper ngo nsp etc etc mm-hmm. but it started with that description mm-hmm. because i was not a good student i wasn't really particularly interested in studying So the reason I mentioned that is because I used to sit at home to play cards. Wow. Uh, okay. I used to gamble with, mm-hmm. but only with family, with cousins yeah. and you mm-hmm. know aunts and uncles and all that stuff. Yeah. Never one, with outsiders. One rupee a point or something like that, huh? Oh, paises, <laughs> not even <laughs> rupees, paises. But you know, you mm-hmm. kind of sharpen your skills of understanding money in some sense. You're dealing yeah. with money. You're mm-hmm. looking at people's expression. What today they call behavioral finance in some sense, yeah. right? So you're you're getting a sense of all of that. at mm-hmm. that young age and uh my father was a doctor 
uh, and he was a GP and a very well-respected and well-known GP. And uh, I had no desire. I was not inclined to be a, I hated the sight of blood. So there was no way that I was going to be a doctor. And I certainly okay. saw him work crazily hard, long hours. Mm -hmm. uh, in those days, you got a call at two in the morning from a patient. You went to see the patient, yeah. uh, stuff like that. So I saw him, you know, waking up at two in the morning, going to see patients, coming back at four, sleeping, getting mm -hmm. up again to go and see patients again in the morning. So I said, there's no way I'm going to work that hard. I'm not even that smart or intelligent. So I always believe there are two things required to be a good doctor. One is bad handwriting, which I have. And the second is to be smart enough to, you know, study medicine and work hard, which I wasn't. So uh, my father was actually a very good bridge player. He represented India in three bridge Olympics, mm -hmm. but he also was very fond of horse racing. And he taught me how to read the form book uh, when oh. I was 12 years old onwards. Mm -hmm. You know, I would sit, sit with him and he'd show me the track record of horses and all that stuff. And, you know, so did I ever expect to manage money per se? Not really, but I was always introduced to money mm -hmm. at a very young age, right? Whether you played mm -hmm. cards at five paise and 10 paise, mm -hmm. or, you know, flush teen pati, uh, or whether you saw, you know, a form book of horses. Mm -hmm. And then not surprisingly in the 1970s, when India under the fairer rules mm -hmm. forced multinationals to sell their equity stake at a formula price at very low prices, unlike today's IPOs uh, to local investors. So I did, I did participate in some of that. And okay. then when we had the demonetization of the bills under the Janta Party, Janta Party yeah. uh, I also participated in that, uh, in the sense that I went to Zaveri Bazaar and I bought bills for 330 rupees, a thousand rupee note. And I went to syndicate bank and deposited it. And I made a nice spread. Wow. So, you know, you kind of did all of that. There was also the time of the Hunt brothers. They had cornered the silver market mm -hmm. uh, in the US, uh, unknown to them. Uh, India had a lot of silver and there was an export ban. And then the government of India removed the export ban. And suddenly a lot of deliveries from India landed up you know, at the shores of Texas, where the Hunt mm -hmm. brothers were based, uh, effectively, you know, giving them, they were buying futures contracts, and suddenly mm -hmm. they got delivery and had to pay cash and the price of silver collapsed, et cetera, et cetera, after a big spike. Uh, gold that time in 79 in, in tandem with silver, you know, hit a, hit a peak at that time, $800 an ounce. Uh, so yes, I did, I was exposed to money. I was exposed to finance, but in a rudimentary street smart sense, mm -hmm. not in the academics world. And my really, uh, I had an interest in English. I wanted to write. I was a writer. I love writing and I used to write a lot of poetry. So I mm -hmm. wanted to study English literature when I was in JN college. And they said, like, what do you do when you study, you know, when you graduate? What kind of mm -hmm. job are you going to get? How much money are you going to earn? So I, then one of my aunts, thank God, I'm uh, in fact going to see her later tonight for dinner. She said, what about economics? Mm -hmm. I had no idea what economics was. Mm -hmm. But I went to, you know, BA in economics in JN. And I just absolutely loved it. And mm -hmm. that was the only time I seriously studied. Uh, and then, of course, as you indicated, I went to the US for my MBA. And um, when I went for my MBA, I was the day I arrived in America, I was sure that I would go back to India. The day I left India to go to America was the day I was sure I would never come back to India. Uh, so when my parents came to see me up at the airport, as was traditional in those days, my mother came actually, not mm -hmm. my father. Uh, you know, they were all crying and I was laughing like, you know, I'm going to go and have a great time life in America. Why are you all crying? Mm -hmm. And I was laughing away and I reached America and I started crying <laughs> and I wanted to get back to India. 
So, mm-hmm. and of course, there, then I studied finance and, you know, mutual funds were very early stage in 1982, 81, 82, 83, when I was in America. It was an innovation of Merrill Lynch, where they allowed you to have, for example, what we call the liquid fund in India. Imagine if you could write a check around your liquid fund money. So that's what Merrill Lynch did in America. As the regulations in America changed, you've all heard of the Glass-Steagall Act. So -hmm. as the regulatory environment changed, you had changes and Merrill Lynch came out uh, with this product. And that's when mutual funds took off in the early 80s. That's also when stock markets took up after a 15, 20 year, you know, kind of dead uh, sideways movement mm-hmm. uh, in the US. So, yeah, so that's when I started getting interest in money and I yeah. wrote, I'm actually carrying it with me. I could show it to you. Yeah, sure. I'm actually carrying with me, uh, strangely enough, I wanted to frame it. So mm-hmm. this is my first note that I wrote while I was studying in America about creating a mutual fund in India. Oh, and wow. at the back, I have written, there's a blocks of things out there. And I wrote this to my cousin who's a lawyer and Mm -hmm. I had no idea what NRI really was and all that stuff. You know, I just knew about Indians living outside India, having a lot of money Mm -hmm. and India was a capital stock country. So I, again, that was all from my economics, right? Mm -hmm. Because in Mm -hmm. economics, you understand savings, gross domestic savings. You Mm -hmm. understand capital formation, capital investment. And from that comes GDP. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my landing up in as a portfolio manager or, you know, equity master, personal FN, quantum mutual fund really came from this background of uh, playing stock market, uh, sorry, playing cards at home, uh, you know, doing stuff around silver, doing stuff around horses, and then the study of economics around it, and then the MBA. Uh, So for someone who's Mm -hmm. come with that background, I've taken a lot of risks. When you play cards, you take risks. You back horses, you take risks. And having learned all that, I've, I've kind of understood and tried to define, as mm-hmm. you spoke, about asset allocation. Yeah. To recognize this strong relationship between risk and return and why every investor mm-hmm. must understand that and then build their portfolio in a very conscious, knowing mm-hmm. way. Sorry, I gave you a long answer, but no, I kind of went around perfect, the world to perfect, to perfect, this. perfect. It's perfect. So uh, before we proceed, I, I, I must mention this on the podcast that... Uh, your father, God bless his soul. Uh, you know, I went to him so many times when I came to Bombay. I was, of course, working at Quantum and I would just hop over and meet him. And uh, it was, you know, it was a it was a lesson. You, of course, got treated, you know, with a, by a very uh, uh, seasoned uh, doc. But uh, it was a life experience. And, uh, you know, God bless his soul again. Uh, so coming back to your, uh, 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 the journey you described. I know there's something that happened at Keenan. Keenan Flagger Business School. That's where you went. Yeah, UNC uh, Keenan Flagger. And you uh, ended up also taking a course. Was it business ethics? Ethics uh, and business, correct. Ethics and business. I think that had a big impact on you. Yes, yeah. So I told you when I reached America, I wanted to uh, kind of head back. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, you know, while I was doing the MBA, I mean, I would wake up in the night with a sweat because I learned the concept of net present value yeah. and you know, <laughs> discounted cash flows. So here I am, you know, thinking I'm going to go back to India, get a job with Citibank and oh, Hindustan leave and get paid 1,500 rupees a month as salary. Those were the salaries in those days every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, working out that I was paying six, $8,000 a year in those days for an MBA. Mm-hmm. It was about eight rupees a dollar. So you do the math on it. You're spending $8,000 a year at eight rupees a dollar and you're earning 1,500 rupees a month. 
mm-hmm. you're spending two years of money, right? At the education, mm-hmm. your net present value is negative. negative. Like there's no way you can ever recover the cost of education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I'd wake up with a sweat and say, you know, how am I ever going to repay my father? Or not that it was a debt, but an obligation that he did something for me and I must look after him in his old age and all that stuff. And, uh, at, you know, at some point in time, I said, okay, fine. I will continue to live in the US, but I'll work with the World Bank mm-hmm. and I'll go and work with the IMF and I'll, you know, help India develop through the World Bank yeah. and IMF. Mm-hmm. So it was Professor Jack Behrman, who mm-hmm. was my professor in ethics and business and another course that he taught was international marketing. So he, he, was, uh, he worked under uh, John Kennedy in his cabinet okay. when John mm-hmm. Kennedy was president, JFK. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he loved India. He used to sit in his room, small little cabin that professors had in the US and, you know, air conditioning off and he'd sit with his eyes closed. And, uh, you know, he was meditating in that sense. Now, you know, 1981 to find someone meditating mm-hmm. in the US was not, it was very unusual. Today it's fashionable, yeah. it's common, mm-hmm. yoga is a big thing, etc., cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, But it was very unusual then. And, you know, Professor Behrman encouraged me to the idea of doing things for India as opposed to getting a job in the US, he encouraged me. And when we finished, when I finished the MBA, I had a chat with him about, you know, what I was going to do next. And Mm -hmm. I said, what about a PhD? Or what if I go and work for the World Bank and IMF? Because to work for the World Bank, IMF, you generally need the PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of my BA in economics, I could have done something with him in, you know, kind of economics finance. So he said, look, I have a friend at the World Bank and YMF, and I can send you to meet them for an interview. So I actually went by bus from North Carolina, took a Greyhound bus and went there. And when I reached, uh, you know, I went there for the interview, I came back, you know, buses took eight hours or 10 hours or whatever to mm-hmm. go up and down. So by the time I came back, Professor Behrman told me that his friends had called him and said, smart guy, nice guy, we'll hire him. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, why do you want to work for the World Bank and IMF? I said, oh, to help India. He said, no, they don't help anyone. They write a lot of reports and do useless stuff. So if you really want to help India, go back to India. So, you know, my father obviously was not very keen that I come back. He was a doctor. What will I do with an MBA, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, but, so he arranged for me to have an interview in New York. An international uh, Sindhi family uh, was in India. and They fell ill and they went to see him. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just happy to tell my father that they were opening an office in New York in July of 1983. That's when mm-hmm. I graduated. And my father said, oh, you know, I have a son there who wants to come back to India and try to convince him not to come. And they said, no, 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 we'll talk to him. So, of course, in, in the month of July, I interviewed with them and they said, you must work with us. Mm-hmm. So I got a job in New York and I stayed there for a little less than a year. Okay. And then uh-huh. I finally decided to come back and I came back. But to get to your point, it was Professor Jack Behrman, yeah. who was a big influence on continuing to keep that India focus. But mm-hmm. saying that to change India or help India, you have to go back and do it in India, not World yeah, Bank and IMF. Yeah. With all due respect to World Bank and IMF and yeah. IFC and everyone else. So then, of course, you came back to India. And somewhere along the way, you met a gentleman called Ashok Birla. Now, you've written about Ashok Birla in the past. But I'd like you to share maybe uh, how that interaction happened and uh, you know what it taught you and you know what were the outcomes of that really that relationship that you had with him yeah so um, i met mr Bill. so the first thing you do when you come back in july 84 mm-hmm. when i landed back in india is you can't go to a dentist 
because okay. you know it's too expensive to have dentists work okay. done anywhere else in the world and uh, went to a dentist and uh, you know you have to always wait uh, so they always have old magazines mm-hmm. to read and there was an old business india magazine lying in the racks i picked it up to read and the cover story was mutual funds in india and it was dated i don't know april or may of uh, 1984 mm-hmm. it was a few months old obviously they keep old magazines etc and um, so i picked up that magazine and uh, you know i read what because remember i this what i told you that i wrote mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. really was a blueprint for yeah. a mutual mm-hmm. fund in india effectively mm-hmm. so i was intrigued and you know there was unit trust of india that was the only mutual fund of india it was on government of india monopoly at that point in time mutual funds were not allowed mm-hmm. and in that i read about this strange man called mr ashok pirla who had this strange idea about raising a private sector mutual fund from international investors and nris to invest in indian stock markets and that's exactly what this was about mm-hmm. um and i said this is fantastic so uh, i uh, you know did not know mr ashok advani of business india i called him up and uh, yeah i told him i'm dr dev's son because he kind of knew my father or knew of my father i imagine which he did and i said you know could you help me i've come from the us i read this article can i come and see you he said sure i went to meet him in his chambers at the bombay high court and uh, i told him exactly what i had in mind that i wanted to meet the people he uh, profiled in that article himantar kothari uh, bhupendra lal of sifco himantar kothari of dsp bhupendra lal of sifco and uh, uh, mr shopirla so he was nice enough and he made the phone calls right in front of me to each of these three gentlemen and he said i've got this you know young man next to me and he wants to talk to you all and they all gave me a time to meet them i met mr himendra kathari he was very smart he said you're smart you're young but you know nothing you go and work somewhere else and come back to me after a few years mm-hmm. mr bhupendalal of sifco mm-hmm. uh, he said he started talking to me about uh, you know a job and then i met mr ashok pirla and uh, you know i did not know much about the birla family at all i really wasn't had to read much about them besides whatever little we knew about their stocks said century and whatever in the market in those days so i went for an interview uh, with a pinstripe suit and everything very american and i'm sitting on the top floor of industry house which is their headquarters in bombay mm-hmm. um, and it's all like a white you know it's a circular room the waiting room and there are gaps which are doorways to go to different parts of it and there are all these pictures of the birla you know mr rd birla gd birla who were the brothers uh, and you know kind of looking very sternly at you with their pictures down and all that stuff so uh, a gentleman came from one corner and he went to the other you know at the end of the room and he was wearing like you know shoes with no socks uh, beige colored trousers and like a light shirt open to the chest button Mm-hmm. you know uh with a mustache uh you know and uh, i kind of gave him a dirty look like you know what are you doing here because you know i'm wearing a suit these two birla portrait guys have suits on and what are you doing here without a suit anyway he went there and then he came out the other side with his hand on his zip and he went off you know to the other end of the hallway so then afterwards a guy in a white topi comes and tells me you know babu bula rahe hain babu is calling you So I go and I push the door open, and that same guy who I gave a dirty look to is behind the desk, and that was Mr. Birla giving me the interview, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having the interview for me and all that stuff. It was quite amazing, and you know, he asked me, he says, "Why have you come back to India?" So I said, "To help India and to change India." 
And he said, in what way? And I said, to get rid of black money and corruption. And he said, you're hired. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now you know this is the Birla family who probably won a lot of licenses in a lot of strange ways, mm-hmm. um, and you know stuff of that nature. But you know my interaction with him from the, that interview onwards was just fantastic because here was a guy who I later realized and experienced in the 1984 till 1990 when he sadly died in a plane crash. Um, you know who had a great vision of India. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he had the most phenomenal mind. I had the pleasure and you know, and, and the honor of interacting with the late. Uh, oh, sorry, with the uh, you know Rahul Bajaj and mm-hmm. uh, Keshav Mahindra and uh, you know so, so so many other people who no longer are alive uh, of the old industrial families, and some who are. And uh, from all the people that I interacted with, I thought Mr. Ashok Pirla had by far the most forward-thinking. India opening up benefit to India mind. Mm-hmm. He made me write articles for L.K. Jha, who was that time an uh, economic yeah, advisor to the government and to the RBI governors mm-hmm. about setting up a dual exchange rate, right? So we had the official exchange rate and we had a black market. Mm-hmm. And he said, why is that a black market? Let the government itself sort of legalize the black market. So you have one rate for mm-hmm. certain goods, you know, which are important, which are like, say, if you're buying defense and arms, and mm-hmm. oil. You have mm-hmm. one rate for that, the official rate. And if you know Ajit wants to go and study in the US or take a holiday abroad, have a second rate yeah. and make that 40% higher, 30%, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. So that you basically capture the black market premium into the government's coffers and you become the market maker for that. So he made me write all these. So again, that was my background of economics and finance. You know, mm-hmm. so I could write about policy, write about thought process and all that stuff. So it was a great blend in terms of my academics and then this man who gave me tremendous freedom and tremendous insights. And that's one thing that I love to give everyone at Quantum is the ability to meet all kinds of people in life and to make decisions and to just learn from my experiences because that's how I kind of benefited you know, for a long, 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 long time. So yeah, he was an absolute genius and... Uh, his last interview in Business India, I remember very well, he made this comment. Uh, he said that he had great ideas, but he was never successful because he didn't have great people implementing the ideas for him. Uh, I hope he wasn't referring to me at that <laughs> stage in time, but anyway. But you know, but that really was a failing of his, yeah. that he didn't have great people to implement his ideas and things that he started uh, in that way. And one other last thing, I remember uh, in... 1989, I was sitting with him in his house. I used to go quite often to meet him late in the night and just talk about different things. And, um, you know, again, news was very limited. We used to get the Wall Street Journal one day late, the Financial Mm -hmm. Times one day late, CNN had just started. Uh, You know, there was still a lot of controls on media. It was not yet a free economy. This is 1989 prior to the 1991 reforms, etc., and your big news was, you know, Pranay Roy and NDTV did that show yep. for Doordarshan. And that was kind of... The World of This Week. The World This Week. I mean, yeah. those are the kind of things. And there were those kind of news, which mm-hmm. were, you know, Raghav Bell did something yeah. about economics. Mm-hmm. You know, we did something with Amit Khanna called Business Plus, you mm-hmm. know, where we'd have a video done every month. We started that in uh, around that time, I think it was uh, 1990, uh, 1989, Anyway, so... We were sitting there on the BBC radio was on and they said the Berlin Wall had collapsed. 
So Mr. Birla was sitting with the glasses at the edge of the reading his paper. He mm. put his glasses up. He looked at me and he said, this is India's moment. And I didn't understand what he meant then. It took me years to understand what he meant. You know, sadly, he died a few months after that. But uh, what he really was saying was that India had adopted the Soviet style of economic growth. Mm-hmm. And with the Berlin Wall falling, the USSR was going to collapse. Soviet Russia was collapsing. And India would finally turn west. And that's exactly what happened. Right? This is a man in you know, uh, 1989, October, whatever the month was, mm-hmm. when the Berlin Wall is collapsing. And he's kind of visualizing this is India's moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, he's not alive today to see it. But he was an absolutely brilliant man, lots of ideas, uh, loved to sort of delegate to people, uh, as he himself admitted, not the best selector of people that he could delegate to, mm-hmm. uh, to implement ideas. But, you know, was an absolutely brilliant man. And sadly, you know, never really converted that brilliance into great uh, market cap success in some sense. Yeah. So at, at some point in time, uh, as your association uh, with uh, Mr. Birla was, you know, evolving and growing, uh, you, you went on to do other stuff as well, right? You wrote the comics, which mm-hmm. became very popular about what is the stock market? How do you pick up? And in 1990 is when you founded Quantum, if yeah. I have the year right. Sure. So, uh, and then of course you started on this other, so you turned entrepreneur for lack of a better word. You became officially an entrepreneur. You set up a company and started doing stuff. Now, I want to rush through the 90s because I think there's a whole bunch of things you did in the 90s. I think uh, you had a joint venture with Jardine Fleming. Uh, it this was the first FII to come to India? Correct. From 1992 to 1995. Correct. You had a joint venture with Jari Fleming. Then you did a, a, a joint venture with a venture. Uh, uh, you had an arrangement with a venture capital yeah, fund. We were the local advisors for India's first, second venture capital fund. Draper and us did it the same week. We signed our agreement first. They announced it to the press first. Uh, oh, so we wow. did the first venture capital fund in 1996. And they got the first press release, but huh? Yeah, they got the first <laughs> press release. We had the first document. Okay, but wonderful. Anyway, but the same week we both announced it. Yeah. Wonderful. And of course, in the 90s, uh, you were, you also had Equity Master launched, which became which was right. India's first financial website. Correct. Right. So it was a busy, busy decade for you. Uh, towards the end of the decade, I think you also entered into a partnership with Hansberger Global Investors. Correct. Uh, founded by Sir. Thomas Hansberger? Thomas Tom, Hans, Tom Hansberger. Thomas, That's, Tom, that was Tom 1990, Hansberger? 1997. Tom yeah. Hansberger was a co-founder of yeah. Templeton Galbraith Hansberger. Mm-hmm. Templeton Galbraith Hansberger was an equity shop mm-hmm. and they were bought over by Franklin, which was big in fixed income mm-hmm. and had no international equity exposure. They wanted to build an exposure to equity products. Mm-hmm. So they bought over Templeton Galbraith Hansberger Sir John Templeton retired, Galbraith retired, Tom Hansberger did not retire and decided to reinvent the wheel and set up a firm under his own name, Hansberger mm-hmm. Global Investors in 1994. Mm-hmm. And I met Tom three years later, 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when we had the partnership with Tom for seven years and learned a lot from that partnership. Yeah. We owe much of what we are today in the investment world to what we learned under Tom's uh, guidance. So if I was to just recap the 70s, 80s, and 90s, from someone who was playing teen patti and, yeah. and doing horse races, 
Yeah. You ended the 90s as a long only value investor. Exactly. Absolutely. Very explainable. It makes <laughs> yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, you <laughs> know, metamorphosis, right? Uh, you know, you have a little lava that becomes a butterfly sort of thing. So you go through stages of life yeah. and you learn different things. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, even, even when I was gambling as a kid, mm-hmm. you never, you know, that's nothing about it, right? Uh, even now I do stupid things, but I do stupid things with small amounts of money. Yeah. And my rule is for that is very simple. And I'm happy to talk about that now. We can talk about it later. But <laughs> if I just expand on it now. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if I look at my asset allocation, and I put this in the comic book mm-hmm. in 1990, uh, sorry, 19, 1987. Mm-hmm. 1987, mm-hmm. we came out with a comic book on the stock. What is a stock exchange? Mm-hmm. And then in uh, eight, 10 months later, I launched a second comic book saying how to launch, how to read a balance sheet. How to financial analysis and all in comic form. That was not that it was funny, but mm-hmm. I took the Japanese thing called the manga, mm-hmm. which is how do you illustrate how do you use illustrations to take a complicated idea and try to make it into a simple explanation. And that's what I did with the with the two with the two comic books. The first comic book, by the way, the stock exchange one, in those days sold about one lakh copies. Wow. You know, and we sold them through all the paper walas outside Bombay Stock Exchange. I used to personally go. And kind of push the product. What was it priced at those days? Uh, five rupees for the stock exchange. That's quite we a had lot of sponsor- money. Yeah, we had sponsors. We had Canara Bank as a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Standard Chartered as a sponsor. We mm-hmm. also came out with the stock market yearbook mm-hmm. in 1988, the first guide yep. in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, we didn't give future estimates on companies, Fact but sheets. profiles yep. mm-hmm. of companies, what they were mm-hmm. doing, their board members and all that stuff. So that happened in... 1980. So you're right. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, there's all this change going on mm-hmm. where I was trying to create databases mm-hmm. and have information so you make more informed decisions. And that's mm-hmm. when that asset allocation triangle idea sort of came in. So at the base of the triangle is what we call safe money. You're looking for safety. You're mm-hmm. looking for liquidity, money that you may need immediately, money that when you want it, it's available to you. Uh, so it must be liquid, must be, if you think it's worth 100, it's got to be worth 100. Yeah. Then above that, you have your basic investments. And then in the middle of the triangle, if you break the investments up into two parts, you have kind of, um, you know, kind of investments that you want to be a little more careful about. You're not willing to gamble them away. And then right at the tip of the triangle, the third part of the triangle, the tip is what we call play money. You yeah. want to do musti. You mm-hmm. buy Bitcoin, mm-hmm. You know, you want to do a bit of satta, you play cars, you want to buy all back horses, you do whatever you want to with that. And mm-hmm. the way I look at play money in my life is, and that's how I uh, that's how I measure it and others can use their own formula, is that play money is that much money you must put aside to play cards or back horses or buy Bitcoin or whatever you want to do with it, where if it goes up 10 times in value, it will not change your lifestyle. And mm-hmm. if you lose all of it, it will not change your lifestyle. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I'm playing cards and I've got a budget in those days as a, as a thing of 10 rupees, mm-hmm. all right, fine. For like maybe two weeks, I won't eat sopari. Mm-hmm. Right? I won't yep. go and buy jira goli and I won't go and buy powder sopari and I won't go and buy milan sopari, I won't buy ice cream. So yep. that's my cost for two, for two weeks. And, you know, if it goes up by 10 times in price, all right, you know, I'm not going to eat more sopari or mm-hmm. more milan or more ice cream. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change my lifestyle, you know, per yep. se. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll change a bit that I'm not going to enjoy my ice cream for two weeks, but not going to change my long-term lifestyle. So mm-hmm. things like that. That's what I do with play money. 
and but the base of the pyramid and go to this straight away that's got to be your safety money and we've defined it and refined it over the years as you learn but the basis and the thesis is still the same it hasn't changed yeah so let's let's stick with the allocation now i think we are talking about this so let's focus on this a little bit more uh what so when when you say the base of the pyramid you you mentioned you said it has to be liquid as well yeah uh, safe and liquid, liquid. Yeah. safe and liquid so that rules out that that's like uh fd in a sbi or a fd in a yeah. post office mm-hmm. or a liquid fund which invests in only government securities where the credit exactly. risk is zero so right. it's that kind of money is that kind of safe yeah. exactly yeah and and so, also so, recognize so. that an sbi fd mm-hmm. there may be a cost to break it so if you think it's yeah. worth 100 if you break it you may have a penalty you may get 99 Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's so something which is liquid means the transaction cost of getting it back in your hand is close to zero. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you yeah. know, if I have cash in my wallet and I want it in my hand, the transaction cost is zero. Hundred in my wallet is hundred in my hand. Hundred rupees under a mattress is hundred in my hand. Hundred mm-hmm. in an FD, which is for three years, is not hundred man. Is ninety nine point something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say liquid, so liquidity is the ability to. get something back in your hand at mm-hmm. the least if not zero transaction cost yeah so no uh, friction yeah i remember uh, i think it was a couple of years ago 2020 you uh, wrote a, a guide of i i i'm not sure i remember the name was it 12 okay. 2080 yeah 12 2080 yeah 12 2080 okay so so uh, you yeah, talk to us about that 12 2080 so mm-hmm. uh, in you know this is on the time when i was writing uh, the the honest truth for equity master mm-hmm. and after the lehman crisis uh, i wrote an article while i was on holiday and saying i'm on holiday and enjoying a beach and sunshine or something or the other mm-hmm. and uh, i actually got i think it was two people who responded by email or comments saying that's very mean kind of thing. how dare you go on holiday when mm-hmm. markets are collapsing and you know everything and i said hey i planned my life that way and i realized that was again come down to asset allocation so then i again started writing at the bottom of every honest truth i would write this sort of table of the 1280 20 12 2080 whatever how you want to call it and what that really was the 12 is what are my monthly expenditures mm-hmm. so let's say i've got a corpus of 1 crore of rupees as savings let's put that number aside and i'm spending 1 lakh a month so mm-hmm. 12 means 12 months of my expenditures so 1 lakh into 12 is 12 lakhs of rupees so i keep 12 lakhs rupees at the base of the pyramid which is in my case the quantum liquid fund uh, i put some money in bank accounts i have no fds at all but the quantum liquid fund and the other part of the money is 2080 so i've got 88 lakhs left 1 crore minus 12 lakhs in the quantum liquid fund i have 88 lakhs left mm-hmm. the 88 lakhs i split up 2080 20% of the 88 lakhs which is roughly about 17.6 so 18 lakhs round about So 18 lakhs goes into gold in the quantum gold ETF on the quantum gold fund. Sorry, mm-hmm. and then the balance of the money, so 88 minus 18, 70 lakhs is put into quantum equity funds. Now, I uh, because of whole bunch of regulations and everything else, I don't buy individual stocks anymore. But a subscriber of say Equity Master or a subscriber of Personal FN may create a basket case of their own funds and their own mm-hmm. stocks. as opposed to going you know directly into funds but in my case i put the money into quantum mutual funds and we've got three products the equity side 
So we've got the quantum long-term value fund, which I learned from Hans Berger and implemented that in India on the value style, which is what I strongly believe in. And then we have an ESG fund now with a th nearly three-year track record come July 2022. And then we have this quantum equity fund of funds, which is a very unique fund where we look at funds created by other fund houses. So there are 400 equity funds out there. If an investor does not want to buy direct stocks and listen to what equity master has to give an advice, and they want to buy a mutual fund, how do they know which fund is out there? So mm -hmm. Personal FN, and, uh, and another company, the group which I helped create, uh, Personal FN has this you know, uh, research database of which funds are good and which you can buy into. Now, if you don't want to make that decision yourself and you want someone else to make it for you, Quantum Equity Fund of Funds has given that answer. You come to Quantum Equity Fund of Funds, you give them the money, they distribute that money to six, seven, eight, nine other mutual funds and mm -hmm. they track and select the funds. The right. beauty of that product, by the way, is that every time Quantum buys or sells a fund or redeems a fund, the equity fund of funds, there is no tax at the equity fund of fund level. If I as an individual were to redeem a fund, depending on how long I held it for, there's a tax. Right? So there, it's like, it's like you know, when you buy a mutual fund of shares, mm -hmm. when, the, when the fund is buying and selling Infosys or Wipro or TCS or ICIC or SBI, there's no tax at the fund level. The, mm -hmm. uh, the tax only occurs when the individual redeems from the fund, right, of that equity fund, very similar way. Anyway, so that balance 70 rupees, I distribute into that bucket of these three funds. Now, mm -hmm. because I'm a value person, I have a much larger allocation to value funds than a normal retail investor should have. Mm -hmm. That's because I'm a value guy. So I'm, you know, I'm, I love that product. Mm -hmm. And I have some other allocation to the equity fund, the funds of the ESG fund. But that 70 rupees, we again suggest in the, uh, the 12, 20, 80, we again suggest to split that with a larger weight to the equity fund of funds. So it goes to other fund houses and then little bit to the ESG fund and little bit to the value fund. So that an investor with this very simple solution has got a phenomenal basket, which is working in for their benefit. You know, if you go back in history and you come back, say, to the year 2000 or so, when we started the value fund as a track record, you make a return of roughly about 12, 13% in such a product and 12, 13% with far lower volatility. So you don't have, you don't wake up in the night with a sweat that, you know, markets are down 50%. What, because generally we've seen in the time of Lehman, even now at the time of March 2020 with the pandemic, and even the last few weeks, when markets correct, gold tends to fall a lot less, if not increase. Mm -hmm. So gold acts like a nice hedge to the portfolio. Uh, and of course, when you have that safe money, it's lying in liquid funds. So it's not earning you much money, but it's, it's a buffer. And it's there for you to use to... Yeah. recalibrate your life till the world stabilizes again. Yeah. So I, I like one of the reasons I like this approach is because it's very simple to actually execute and it works. Yes. Uh, for example, if someone had implemented this process earlier this year, mm -hmm. you know, he would not be worried about market movement because he's got 12 months of cash. You, you know, he can still go on his summer holiday this right. month or whenever he's taking the break. Uh, uh, your goal, your allocation to gold Correct me if I'm wrong, when probably I first bumped into you 25 years ago, you probably mentioned that gold should be 5-10% of your portfolio. Correct. Now it's a larger amount. Has anything changed in your, what's changed in your thinking that you've increased your allocation to gold over time? So, yeah. So from August 15th, 1971, 
Mm-hmm. That is the day when President Nixon decided to take the U.S. dollar off the gold standard. Mm-hmm. So till August 15th, 1971, in theory, you could walk into a bank in the U.S. and mm-hmm. say, you know, that time gold was about $38 an ounce, say for $40 an ounce. You could take $40 and say, give me one ounce of gold. Or you could say, here's an ounce of gold, give me $40, either of the two, mm-hmm. right? Because the dollar was backed to the gold. On yeah. August 15th, Nixon took that peg away. And we've seen that the U.S. dollar has effectively collapsed by 95% against, against gold. If you look at you know, what was 1971 price in gold, it was about $40, like we said. And today it's $1,800, even though it's come down a bit recently. Uh, and we've seen an acceleration of money printing around the world uh, since 1997. You've had different stock market collapses that have happened and they are wrongly called black swan events a black swan event is meant to happen only once in a while yeah but these mm-hmm. happen with a routine mm-hmm. because the field of finance with its you know sort of highly questionable practices and its uh, sort of political lobbying and connectivity with the field of regulatory environment mm-hmm. has basically been very very um, has been very Uh, lacks in terms of discipline mm-hmm. and you've got the central banks of the world printing yeah. money you know shamelessly mm-hmm. and basically debasing the monetary you know the, the the value of fiat currency so that's where i think you've got the disconnect i think you've got a situation where gold should be much if you just look at the monetary supply base in the world even though the fed is even though the fed is now shrinking its balance sheet and raising interest rates There is so much excess built up, 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. 2000, every collapse, more printing, more money, rather than feeling the pain. And therefore, I believe gold is undervalued. And therefore, I've upped my allocation on personal level from 5 to 10 to 10 to 15 you yeah. know, percent of gold. Yeah. I mean, for those who are even more traditional, I would not be surprised if they even have a 20% weight of gold. That's right. Uh, That's as right. such, right? In yeah. some sense. And I'll tell you one other thing that I've done for myself. I have uh, ensured that my 12 months is actually 36 months for me. Okay. Because it's my personal situation. Everyone should look at that. So don't stick to the formula of 12, 20, 30, uh, uh, 80. You can make it 36, 20, 80 or okay. whatever you want or 36, 10, 90. But that's the starting base. And mm-hmm. the reason I do 36 is because in my broader family, I'm probably the only bread winner or bread earner. I have responsibilities to... look after other people who are not necessarily earning, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're in a situation, you should need to tailor make that. It's yeah. not a rigid formula, right? Yeah. You take the triangle and you make your own three compartments of what is your safety, liquid emergency money, you mm-hmm. know, what is your investment portfolio money and what is your play money, right? Yeah. You make your own compartments in that sense. Yeah. 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 So, so this is very helpful and I think it serves as a guide. And what I like about it is also one more thing I like about it, apart from the simplicity is, it's uh, uh you don't really have to care about the market movements right uh it's suited for you and you can live with it for 5 10 15 years yeah. and that just takes away so much day to day pressure of looking at you know the yeah. tv channels and figuring out what's happening to uh to your wealth yeah. if, if uh, i can just make one quick thing here to round this up before you move to another topic is mm-hmm. i know that on the quantum mutual fund website they now have this you should look at it and you can play around with mm-hmm. it and you can do your suggestions you get your suggestion And then you yeah. can, you know, they'll give you a recommendation based on 1228 and you can play around with it to whatever you want. Yeah. And literally, and there's another thing, you know, that's there is that we want to keep it as low cost as possible. 
Mm-hmm. So when you mm-hmm. do this, your entire portfolio cost, I think, is some 0.4% of this blended product. Oh, wow. You know, uh, 0.45 or 0.4, oh. something like that. It's like very low. And, and, and they're coming up with another other option that will be half that, you know, v- very okay. shortly. Yeah. yeah, costs are important to manage. Yeah. So uh, uh, a very quick comment. When you say gold, do you mean pure gold or you're saying bullion, which includes silver? So I would equate uh, gold. Uh, so I would say it with pure gold. You can put okay. some silver. I've got some silver, but it's not a lot. I prefer gold to silver because, you know, sil- silver's price also is determined as an industrial use metal. So it's price also the function of how there's economic activity, mm-hmm. whereas gold is probably 80% as precious metal and 20% as non-precious metal uses. Silver is half and half. Yeah. So it's kind of half copper, half gold sort of thing as it's called. So, but just yeah. like to say other thing in the history a bit, that I also managed money for Vanguard. And I understood from Vanguard the importance of keeping costs low. That's mm-hmm. why we were the first to launch India's first direct-to-investor mutual fund in, in uh, 2006 mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time when we come out with 12 20 80 very conscious of keeping the cost low and very predictable as john bogle the founder of vanguard who passed away a few years ago sadly always used to say that costs are known returns are unknown and unpredictable mm-hmm. yeah that's something to think over okay so uh one more question on allocation mm-hmm. before we move to other stuff uh, a lot of people who are listening or watching right now are thinking, okay, you got cash covered, you got gold covered, you got the risky assets, equities covered. Where does property stroke real estate fit for you? I don't think of property as an investment per se. I think of it as more use, like for your use. So I keep it out of the equation. Uh, I would say 90% of us in India are buying their first home, you know, maybe 95% are buying their first home. Um, And I think till you've got your first home paid off Mm -hmm. and you've paid all the mortgages off and everything, I don't think of property as something which you should, as a second investment besides what you've already invested in. Mm -hmm. So I don't really consider that as an investment for a lot of people. Now, if there are high net worth individuals or those who've already got their first property, or you have, you know, young children who are about to get married or have their own homes, and you want to help them with a down payment, that's a separate, you know, allocation that you make. Uh, and you keep that aside, and then you come back to what's left after that. So I would not put property as an investment for 95% of people in my view. Okay, we take it out of the equation. Great. So uh, before I uh ask you even more questions related to this whole money thing and related stuff. I want to go to your Twitter account. Now, I have not checked it off late, but the last I I saw, (laughs) (laughs) the last I saw, you had four flags out there. Uh, The UK flag, the Swiss flag, the US flag, and I think the Indian flag, was it four flags? Of course, the Indian flag has to be. Of course, the Indian flag. (laughs) (laughs) So you had four flags. I have four flags out there, okay. So So what's the story behind that? What's the story? Long story. We have a separate podcast for that. But the bottom line is, of course, I'm Indian. I'm born in India, grew up in India, love India. Mm -hmm. Most of the work, most of my life has been working, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, around things which are in India all my life. Uh, you know, focused on in, in India-based project solutions, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I was married to um, a lady from Switzerland, and my children are Swiss. They were born in Switzerland, so that's the Swiss flag. Uh, Switzerland is, in that sense, my home. I fly there a lot to meet my to meet my children. They're they're, they're young adults now. Can't mm-hmm. say children, but they are still my children. Um, and the U.S. because you know that's where I studied, lived, worked with Tom Hansberger. You know, went to UNC, met Jack Berman. I love going there on vacation. I still have an apartment which I kept there uh, in the place that I used to work when I was with Tom Hansberger. Place called Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only one, I actually bought two more. Now three apartments in that same building, and I bought the other two. Bad. Now this is where investments are bad. <laughs> I bought it just before the pandemic. And I bought it because I wanted to spend time with my friends. And one way to attract friends is to say, "I have an apartment for you. Please come and stay with me." Right? And they all come lining up. It worked beautifully the first year, and then for two years, it, I was locked down. I couldn't, you know, we, no one could fly to America, mm-hmm. so there was no question of. So I just paid a lot of maintenance fees, mm-hmm. and you know, property taxes for that. And then UK. Mm-hmm. So I was. Um, I was on my way to the U.S. for an eye surgery uh, when they shut down the flights, so I could not leave the U.K. to go forward for my eye surgery to the U.S. Uh, why? Because my uh, while well, I was living there, I was diagnosed with some eye problems, and so my doctor seen me there for twenty years, and I was meant to have the eye surgery in uh, August of twenty twenty. Um, anyway, so I could not go to the U.S. I could not come back to India. And I had to wait till all the vaccinations were done. So UK gave me the vaccines. They were, of course, probably made here at the Serum Institute. Mm-hmm. But I took my vaccinations in the UK, so they saved my life, I guess, for COVID. Mm-hmm. So that's why UK too. So yeah, so I've got four geographies yeah. that I still, and I actually am spending more time in UK. So mm-hmm. we we were doing something around ESG. So uh, just before, just prior to the pandemic, we were very keen as quantum. Advisors and Quantum Mutual Fund to do a lot of more work on ESG, which we actually started in 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have this governance rule in our value fund, and wanted to understand more. So I actually uh, went to London with the view, and I chose London because London is the impact capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything about UN Sustainable Goals, ESG, you know, a sort of governance, uh, Im- impact investing. London is by far the thought leader of that. So I actually positioned myself, and I took a service apartment on rent for a while to make it a home for a few months, a base to travel across Europe, mm-hmm. as opposed to US, which is quite backward on ESG. Um, so I could use London as a base and travel to Copenhagen, travel to Sweden, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, learn what's happening, and then the pandemic hit. So I could totally, I got stuck there and couldn't really yeah. do anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's why the London flag is there because it's. Uh, I still go there. I have a, I still have a place. So I'm. I'm now straddling four geographies, mm-hmm. and each of those four flags. I have a reason to go to each of those four. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I could. I'm, I'm very happy that that flights are back to normal or close to normal. You know, I could add a fifth flag if that place had one. That would be Goa, right, for you? <laughs> uh, yes, Goa. Maybe, I yeah. go to, but not that often. I would like to go there more. Yeah. But when I'm here, I'm mostly in Bombay. Mm-hmm. So I went to Goa in December of 2021. Mm-hmm. For you know a few days, but not mm-hmm. not since then. Okay, okay. So uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, uh, investments, right? Uh, and I'm I'm keen to get your view for someone who's a value investor, right, and who's seen 
gambling in the early days uh i think one of the biggest challenges that uh, uh this current generation of investors has is uh, how do you uh either buy into or not get swept away with these new ideas that are coming right now you know you've had this now some of them are available in india some are not for example you've had this massive uh, uh, issue with uh, spacs last year right hundreds of billions of dollars of spacs uh in india you've had this whole ipo craze that has happened which i think peaked earlier this year late last earlier this year i guess uh you've had this whole crypto craze uh that is happening so for someone who's seen all these cycles for i guess what this is your fifth decade of seeing them closely if you will you're really dating me now but yes something <laughs> like that yeah for, so uh, talk to us a, a little bit about this uh tell us whether you got swayed by any right and what did you learn or if you did not get swayed by what was your reality check and how did you stay away from this the, the more stories the better in this yeah okay so you know uh if you're an equity investor which i am firstly mm-hmm. you have to be an optimist because you're buying into the future story mm-hmm. so you can't be a pessimist and be an equity investor then you got to be short all the time you can't be a long Fair investor problem. so you have to be optimist at the same time you got to not be carried away and you got to try to figure out the future mm-hmm. what is a likely reality and what is fiction right so it's not it's never easy and you can never get those things right on a consistent basis but it's important to be right for a longer period of time and with more things and to be wrong you know for a short long you should be wrong for a shorter period of time and for few things in some sense so if you have your rights are better uh, and your wrongs are fewer that's far better obviously so i think the way to measure it mm-hmm. is to have that optimism which is inherent Mm-hmm. and the other is to try to you know kind of visualize that future and participate in it by trying to have certain metrics and the metrics can be now the one thing we heard about today is tam total addressable market market mm-hmm. now, you know i look at tam i mean you know everything is a tam for me right if i'm sitting in quantum mutual fund mm-hmm. and i see that there are a billion point two people i can suddenly say okay out of billion point two people maybe there are like you know 400 million people below the age of 21 or 18 i've got a 800 million tam mm-hmm. you know so you can create this tam story about everything and i said because right now there's an ipo going on and i saw a little subhead headline our tam is something 300 billion or whatever it was so you can have the tam number well, that's fine we all can have a tam number but i think the the more rational way to look at these is if you're making an investment in something which is a concept mm-hmm. you take that play money part mm-hmm. and invest your play money in it mm-hmm. right so as an entrepreneur as you sort of described me mm-hmm. um we did invest in technology by setting up equity master as india's first you know financial website on april 22nd 1996 20 you know uh, right. 6 years ago 6 yeah. years ago and change so we did that uh, it was you know we invested business money into it that is not a con- it was a concept we put business money in it now if i was to invest in pet.com or you know nike.com or whatever it is mm-hmm. i would put play money in that 
mm-hmm. because I don't know who those winners are. Very mm-hmm. difficult to gauge who is going yeah. to actually win, right? I mean, in so there's a reality of an of a addressable market. There's a reality of technological evolution, and there's the other difficult part of assessing how much you should invest as a as a passive investor mm-hmm. in such a new technology or a new opportunity. And to me, that's all the play money part, yeah. right? Until you seriously understand the metrics, and yeah. then you can put serious capital behind it. You know, this Even reminds me. Price. This reminds me of what Mark Anderson said uh, recently. I I, I know where I have read that. Mm-hmm. I, it was an interview. and he said they are no bad ideas they are just ahead of their time right. so for example in 1999 or 2000 amazon seemed like a terrible idea it was just too early so at yeah. some point it will get it right but how you allocate goes back to yeah. allocation that's right if you had allocated well yeah. you'd be fine right yeah, absolutely you'd be right. fine so 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 you uh, if i understand this right you are saying that yes you can get swept away in a mania as long as you don't shake your allocation and feed the mania from the tip of the pyramid it's you fine know, you're yeah. fine you'll have still have you can have yeah. still a lot to talk to at cocktail That's parties right. and, and say and hey, you know, i bought this stock yeah. correct and if something at the tip of the pyramid becomes real and mm-hmm. is doing well mm-hmm. you can always put more capital behind because now you have more visibility right? yeah there is no shame if you missed amazon at 1 yeah but if at Sixty dollars or eighty dollars or hundred dollars. Yeah. When you have more visibility, if you believe you have it, you put yeah. up, you buy it for hundred dollars. There's no shame in that. Yeah. You should not say, "Oh, I wish I bought at one." At one. No, at one, it's a concept. You have really no idea what's going to happen. No one has an idea what's going to happen. Yeah. But once it's got a visibility, then you can measure it, and you're willing to pay more. And that's where the other part, which many young people don't understand, and actually many people don't, young or old, don't understand, is the alternative. to your investment which is the risk free rate of return mm-hmm, no mm-hmm. one's understood or people have forgotten that concept of risk free rate of return we've lived in a world or have grown up in a world for most people of easy money and cheap money until a few months ago 70% or whatever the number was of european bonds had negative yields right the hundreds of billions of dollars were giving you negative yields ie if i gave the german government 100 euro they were going to pay me back 99 euro after 3 years or whatever it was mm-hmm. right that was just till a few months ago all this was going on stupid stuff so in that environment when capital is not so i want to distinguish as i was taught between money and capital okay. so there's play money at the top of the pyramid and there's investment capital in the other two blocks of the pyramid right mm-hmm. and sam zell who's a very uh, you know seasoned real estate investor Mm-hmm. uh in the uk he sold his uh, property portfolio uh you know uh, a few dec- uh, about a decade ago 2007 and um, so sam zell and i were giving a talk together he was the keynote speaker one i was keynote speaker two so before we got up on the dais we said hello to each other and exchanged you know, uh, greetings and he asked me he said you know young man he's much older than me he said young man what do you do and you know not not that i'm young but relative yeah so i said you know i manage money he said what so i told him value investing or he said no 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 you don't manage money you manage capital capital has a cost related to it money is free mm-hmm. right so money is what you play with capital is what you invest so now the risk free rate of return 
which is in the global world is a US 10-year bond. The US 10-year government of USA bond was on average between 4.5% to 5% per annum. And we've been so used to seeing it at 1% and half a percent and 2% and all for a long, long period of time because of all the printing going on in a post-Lehman world. Now it's moving up to 2.93%, breaking those barriers, and people are nervous. And people are thinking that, you know, where is it going to end? Is it going to end at four, five? Where is it going to go? But anything which you're doing as an investment, Mm -hmm. your first option is, what if I invest in the US government and I get 5% rate of return? Is that good enough for me or not? Or do you have a better rate of return? And this is very important to understand because all the foreign money in the world owned by the pensions, owned by the uh, university endowments, the foundations, the sovereign funds, that's how they invest. They first look at the risk-free rate of return in their home country or the US bond. Mm -hmm. So if the US government is offering California teachers' pension or California state employee, CalPERS or CalSTRS, who are the $400 billion each, with giants in the US pension funds, if they can earn 5% by investing in their home country, right? they'll put a chunk of their money in that 5%. And they'll put a little bit of money in everything else, including US equity, including emerging markets, including Indian stocks. But when interest rates are zero, they're not earning anything in their home country, and they have to earn a rate of 7% to pay off their pension employees and pension teachers. Then they begin to invest around the world and in stocks in India or the world and the US to see how much higher rate of return they can get. So mm-hmm. there's going to be that you know, weighing scale. As mm-hmm. interest rates go up in the US, there'll be less reason for people to invest in stocks around the world, including India. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you'll see that. Um, and you know, as we've seen in India the last four or five months, there's been persistent selling yeah. by foreign investors because money is going back to home base, to home country, That's because right. interest rates are increasing. Yeah. On that. So yeah. a local a retail and individual investor mm-hmm. must recognize in their case, what is the State Bank of India FD rate? If the SBI FD rate becomes 11 or 12%, I will just put all my money there. In SBI, yeah. Uh, why would I put it in stocks? I'll yeah. put a lot less in stocks and I'll put a lot less in gold. Yeah. Right. So, you know, a lot depends on interest. Interest rates are absolutely the most fundamental foundation yeah. of how you should think about investing. Yeah, I remember you telling us, and I'm going to say late 90s, that the first thing you do, and now I do that every day, by yeah. the way, is to see the 10-year US yield. Yeah, the I mean, I did not see it for many years because it was fiction. So in an environment where there's fiction money, where you've got interest rates which are sub-zero or close to zero for a decade, and in an environment where everyone is using the stock market as a speculation place and not, you know, it's like a place to play team pati and back horses right. as opposed to a place to deploy capital. Again, going back to economics and learnings, the reason why you have financial markets is to take the savings of households mm-hmm. and put those savings to work in the economy so that companies can invest and create jobs, which creates wealth, which again creates savings. It's like a virtuous cycle. That's right. And financial markets are meant to be that bridge. Mm-hmm. What has happened in the world, and that's another episode I get of a podcast, is that financial markets have begun to rule everything else. That's mm-hmm. why we talk about Wall Street and Main Street. 
yep. right? this mm-hmm. dichotomy. Yep. The financial markets are supposed to serve Main Street. Mm-hmm. Now the financial markets are actually making Main Street poor yep. and enriching Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Completely mm-hmm. not what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, tail wagging the dog situation. Absolutely, yeah. tail not riding. It's like swallowing the dog. Yeah, mm-hmm. very sad. So, uh, tell us one episode where you got caught up for early in your career uh, in one of these market uh, moves, if you will, in a stock or in a commodity, in a in in something. BITV. Mm-hmm. I've had many, but I can tell you, I'll tell you BITV because it's one that. BITV would be Business India Television. India Television. So remember yeah. going back to my story about my uh, yep. dentist yeah. and everything. So, you know, obviously I'm a big fan and big follower of BITV. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to write for BITV okay. also various articles. Business India Magazine, yes. Business yes. India Magazine, sorry, yes. yeah. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we invested under Jardine Fleming Quantum. We invested in ZTV when it was a concept. Mm-hmm. There was nothing about private television in yep. those days. And, uh, you know, uh, and that did extremely well. That's right. Uh, yeah. And then because we did well in ZTV, people came to us with a whole bunch of, you know, media sort of uh, things to look at. So Ashok Advani of BITV approached us in 1994, I'm going to say, and he approached us with a business plan to take the magazine Business India. Mm-hmm. And he recruited three people to run three other verticals for him. One was going to be Raga Bell to wow. run stock markets and financial market vertical. The other was Pranay Roy mm-hmm. to run everything about what's going to happen in you know, politics. politics. Everyone in India loves politics. Yep. So the politi- political side. And the other was Shekhar Kapoor who was going to run all the entertainment stuff. Wow. And BI itself was going to get a joint venture with BBC mm-hmm. of the UK. Mm-hmm. So what we were presented with was this, you know, wonderful dream team, uh, dream team, absolutely <laughs> dream team. And, uh, you know, uh, on the phone as Jardine Fleming Quantum, I helped BITV raise, I'm going to say 70, 80 crores. I can't remember the number, but it was a big amount big of money. Big amount those days. 70, in those, big, big amount of money. And, uh, you know, to help them because they had to set up a TV channel, they were going to set up a transponder in Nepal because private TV channels were still not allowed in India. Mm -hmm. So set up a transponder in Nepal and Nepal would beam to India, etc. As much as Z had a connection with Rupert Murdoch and Sky Mm -hmm. for their transponders when we invested with them. So he was going to set up one in Nepal. And it was 1994. And, you know, he was waiting for these approvals and he got these 60, 70 crores. And I think, I don't quite know the details, but I think that was because he had so much money with him, People started coming to him to borrow money from him. So he became like a mini bank. Okay. Right? And uh, while waiting for the approvals. And he gave money to A, to B, to C, to D at all, you know, 2% a month interest, 3% a month interest. Those were the interest oh rates God. in those days, 24%, 36% interest, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So he had all that done. And then we had the December 1994 tequila crisis. That's when Mexico went bankrupt. That's right. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. the emerging markets collapse because That's when right. that happens, everyone takes goes back to home country. Home country in the developed world is Germany, London, you know, Norway, Sweden, whatever, USA, mm-hmm. etc. All the money goes back. It doesn't stay in emerging markets. So India got whacked by that too. The rupee currency, stock markets, everything went down. Interest rates went up further, etc. Everything went wrong for India after that 95. So at that point in time, uh, he'd given money out, like I said, unsecured loans or whatever they were. And then he asked for the money back. 
the money never came back <laughs> so <laughs> he, then he started getting approvals and he's got hiring staff and you know money to be spent wow, and he had no money yeah. so he started borrowing at 3-4% a month <laughs> and of course you know the whole thing just imploded but wow. I'm laughing but it was very sad because if you think about it mm-hmm. each of the people that he had mm-hmm. went on to do something brilliant uh, Shekhar Kapoor has won an Academy Award uh, Prarar Roy has built a fabulous franchise and company in NDTV yeah. Raga Bell built up TV18 Money Control yeah. uh, which he then sold to the Amanis or whatever Mm-hmm. NBC. But, you know, each of them were fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, we just, you know, we made wow. an investment where where we had a bad CFO, I guess, or just bad. And this was, this was within the was. first five years of your entrepreneurial journey. So it yeah. must have been yeah. quite instructive. And this, was, right? and this was a big mistake. I mean, this was like, you know, not only my capital, but mm-hmm. I got clients' funds mm-hmm. to invest in them. So big international groups. The good news is, that after I left Jardine Fleming, one of those guys who lost money was my first client wow. when, I, when I left. So that they obviously saw something fit. over there. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. also yeah. because, like I said, as long yeah. as you have more winners than losers, people yeah. don't mind your losses, as long as yeah. you have more winners. Yeah. So we made, you know, multiple such. I remember Namaste Exports. That was uh-huh. another IPO done at the Trident Hotel at the rooftop. You know, mm-hmm. great looking models walking yeah, yeah. around yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. you know, doing that Namaste yeah. Export leather garments, leather bags yeah. and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, done. There was uh, NEPC, uh, NEPC Micon. Anyone remember yeah. NEPC Airlines, whatever else? Yeah. You know, so I remember meeting a uh, senior man uh, at that time, Mr. Kimka. Uh, so they just set up the airlines. They can't be like, what are you doing with an airline? <laughs> I remember sitting in his office mm-hmm. and he explained to me the rationale for being in an airline, which wow. was, uh, I will buy, I will invest in anything where I get one rupee a kilo as a revenue. <laughs> so from salt, so that- he had NEPC salt <laughs> to NEPC Micon, wow. which was windmills, to NEPC airline, which was one rupee a kilo. I guess I never did the calculation. Yeah. We didn't hang around long enough to be in the stock. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, you make these mistakes, you make these blunders, uh, you learn. I have, there's, there's a sadness though. Sometimes you make a fantastic call and someone takes it away from you. So Bharati, at one point in time, I think we owned 6 or 7% of Bharati. Bharati Telecom was making push-button telephones. Yeah. The Beetle uh, phones? The Beetle phones? The, yeah. the Beetle phones, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a big sort of revolutionary thing. Yeah. And I remember in 1993 or whatever the year was, they got the license to have a mobile phone system okay. with a partnership of an Italian company called Stet, S-T-E-T. Okay. Uh-huh. And I remember going to meet Nara and Murthy for their IPO. Mm-hmm. That was 92, actually. So mm-hmm. I remember this happened 92, 93. I remember going through IPO. And he was telling us about how it was very expensive. It cost, I think it was 10 lakhs of rupees to get a 28 KBPS line from MTNL. Okay? 20 lakhs of rupees. Something stupid. Or 10 lakhs of stupid like that. For a 28 KBPS line. And here we knew that Bharti was getting a license for mobile. So you kind of match the two, figure out that, you know, mobile costs would come down and there'd be more revenues for this. Bharti was snatched away from us. Uh, the company delisted. We yeah. were the last guys to sell. We had to sell because we're not allowed to own delisted stocks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then after two, three years, you know, Warburg Pinkers claimed credit and said, look what we did. Well, you know, we were there before them, but sa- sadly we were crowded out yeah. and we lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of profits. Yeah. by not being in it on behalf of clients. So you, you get these misses too, 
where you make the right investment, but somehow a regulatory environment or sure. you know change uh, change of heart of the founder or something okay, yeah. mm-hmm. to take takes away the 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 pie from yeah. you. Yeah. So of course, uh, one thing we're going to delve deeper into is the Infosys IPO, 1992, and meeting Mr. Murthy. That's something I think very few people were close to the situation you were. So we're going to talk more about that. Perfect. We'll do so. Okay. Okay. We can stop it here. Yeah. Thank you. That's the cliffhanger. That's a cliffhanger. <laughs> <for> next time. <laughs> Thank you, Aji. Thank you for your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So that was part one of our two-part episode with Ajit Dayal. Next week, we'll continue chatting with Ajit and pick up from his interaction with Narayan Murthy and the Infosys IPO. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.